1: This is chapter 23 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we get a preview of Thriller Fest, the annual gathering of thriller writers happening here in New York City this week. Our beach read from author Fiona Barton was inspired by a real-life news clipping, and then Pat Farnack interviews author Courtney Mom about her book Touch, which tackles our struggle to unplug. Every year around this time, thriller writers descend on New York for the annual Thriller Fest. I recently spoke with executive director Kimberly Howe about the annual gathering of international thriller writers.
0: We have a group of authors from many different countries, over 40 countries, and they descend on New York City every July for an event called Thriller Fest. And it's fantastic. Um, Some of the top thriller authors like Lee Child, R.L. Stein, um, Steve Barry, and many others will be joining us um, at the conference this year.
1: Is the program you put on mostly for aspiring writers? Is it for fans, too? Tell us a little bit more.
0: Sure, we have something for everyone, to be frank. Um, We have Master Craft Fest and Craft Fest, which is really like an intensive school if you want to learn how to write a thriller. And we have people like Lee Child and Stephen James and um, Andy Gross teaching um, classes there, which is phenomenal. And we also have a Pitch Fest, which is where aspiring authors can pitch their story to top agents, editors, and producers. But as far as fans go... Thriller Fest proper, which is on the Friday and Saturday, um, is a phenomenal place to be able to hear you know, your favorite author interviewed or a panel about a specific topic in the thriller genre. So it's really, we really, truly do have something for everyone. And on Saturday evening, we have a banquet where it's sort of like the Oscars um, for writing and people are nominated and, and win the awards for thrillers.
1: And you mentioned panels. What sort of panels can uh, people expect to see?
0: Well, we have a huge variety. Um, Because we write thrillers, we love to bring in experts. And so we'll have a panel of Navy SEALs coming, if anyone finds that interesting. And as well, um, we'll have top authors talking about the craft of writing or the business of writing. Um, For example, we have an incredible panel coming up where all the thriller masters of the past, we have 12 years now, and every year we nominate someone for a Lifetime Achievement Award. This year's um, honoree is Lee Child. And so we'll have people like Lee Child, Sandra Brown, Arl Stein, David Morrell, who created Rambo, and a host of other thriller masters will be speaking in one panel.
1: And I know something else that you have, you, you put out a book in, that goes along with Thrillerfest, and this year it's called Match Up. Tell us a little bit more.
0: It's fantastic. So what basically it is is an anthology of short stories, and we've paired 22 authors in total. And so each one is paired a male and female author, and they write a short story together, and they include their iconic characters. For example, Lee Child is paired with Kathy Reichs. So, you know, Jack Reacher meets Temperance Brennan. So that should be quite an interesting story to read.
1: Yeah, I have to agree. I've read the, the the books in the past and they've always been so interesting to see all your favorite characters come together
0: yeah, it's pretty phenomenal we had face-off a couple of years ago and it's kind of the same principle we had twenty two authors and they were paired together and it went over so incredibly well it's one of the best um, selling anthologies of all time actually and um, we decided to do match-up and so I would definitely check it out it's available now
1: so now that we've stoked people's interest are there still tickets available where can they sign up
0: A hundred percent. So if you just go to thrillerfest.com, all the information and the different events are there. And um, my email is also on that site. So if you have any specific questions, don't hesitate to reach out to me.
1: And I also imagine it's a lot of work pulling this kind of event together year after year. What's your favorite part?
0: Wow. I I have to say I'm honored to be part of this organization and have been since the very beginning of Thriller Fest. I started volunteering, and then the wonderful author Steve Berry talked me into running the conference. And I think my favorite part is Craft Fest. That is where, you know, the top New York Times bestselling authors will talk about their writing craft. And to get inside such brilliant minds and see how they work, I think is really fascinating.
1: Thank you for your time today, and I look forward to being there.
0: Yeah, and we look forward to welcoming you, and thanks so much for their time today.
1: As you heard Kim say there, this year's Thriller Master is Lee Child, the guy behind those super popular Jack Reacher books. Well, we'll talk to him in next week's podcast. And I'll be at Thriller Fest too, part of a panel called How to Give a Killer Interview. A mystery lies at the heart of Fiona Barton's The Child, but the story itself is much more than just solving it. I spoke with her this morning about it.
2: I've kept the reporter Kate Waters um who was in the who we met first in the widow um she is the um the, the main narrator if you like um she she's the person pushing the story along and she um sees a paragraph uh, in a local newspaper about the discovery of a baby skeleton on a building site in South London and she's drawn to the story she's a mother herself um she wants to know why would somebody bury a baby? Um, who else would know about it? And who was keeping the secret? So she wants to look into it, um, and all, but there are three other women in the book um, who also either see or hear about that discovery. And each of them has a secret which links them to it. Um, and so it's Kate's investigation and the impact that that has on the lives of three other women.
1: Not only is this story about this central mystery about what happened to this baby, it's also a story of four different types of mothers and the agony and heartbreak that sometimes comes along with motherhood, isn't it?
2: Yes, it is. Uh, it is. I've always been very interested in the relationships between mothers and daughters. It's, it's a bit like a special club that, you are, um, that you're admitted to um, when you, in turn, have a child, I've always found. Um, That happened with myself and my mother when I had my first baby and uh, has just happened with my daughter, who's just had her first. And I've always been interested in that interaction um, between a mother and a daughter um, over the years from my own experience, but also from the experience of um, women that I've interviewed.
1: And you also tackle how women can and are shamed into keeping quiet about certain things that happen to them.
2: Yes, you're right. Um and the idea of secrets, um those hidden lives really that almost all of us have, um but not to the same degree. So, um I think especially now um, in the age where we live where everything about us can be known and often is out there on social media, um I think we're hiding things more deeply now, things that we don't want people to know have to be squirreled away um, much more deeply than they used to, because we're constantly being scrutinized. Um, so the idea of secrets and hidden lives uh, has always fascinated me, you know, from literature and from journalism.
1: And can you tell us what sparked this story for you?
2: Well, actually, it's the same, um, the same thing that sparked it for Kate, my journalist in the book. Um, I used to be always on the lookout for another story, a new story, and often you'd find, find those stories or an angle in um, magazines, newspapers, other people's stories where you'd just spot a line where you thought, oh, I wonder what happened there, what's the story behind that? And um, I saw a story about, I think it was actually a mummified body of a baby being found, and I had exactly the same reaction that I'd give to Kate, you know, why would somebody do this? You know, what would, what are the circumstances that would make you do something so desperate? Um, and I tore it out, put it in my handbag and uh, for later. And uh, I'm pretty sure that that crime was um, was solved very quickly. So I didn't have a chance to actually write about it, but the idea stayed with me. Um, and there've been other cases since then of of women who have hidden babies born in perhaps what they consider shameful circumstances or in, um, you know, for other reasons. Um, And it it definitely speaks to me, uh, makes me wonder, gets me going.
1: And you just mentioned that you're a journalist. This book also dives into the whole 24-7 news cycle and the proliferation of what's now called clickbait online. Is what you, the way you write it in the book, how you personally feel, how j- the, the state of journalism has become?
2: <laughs> oh, dear. Um, <laughs> well, let's just say that, um, you know, I, I, I absolutely understand how Kate feels in the book. It's been, you know, such a seismic change in journalism um, for reporters of my vintage we sort of embraced the whole um coming off hot metal and all the very archaic ways of producing newspapers but um now faced with 24 7 news online reporters who have to do the pictures the audio the video everything um and the danger is that you become irrelevant in that world as a reporter unless you do all that um so i wanted to talk about that um and I used, actually, a, a young journalist um, who she has to um, take with her, her newsroom child, as she calls him, poor Joe Jackson, who's an online journalist, very young, about the same age as um, one of her boys, her sons. And uh, I wanted to point up um, the differences between the two worlds, really, Um and also, it made me laugh because uh, I could see myself saying some of those things, um, which uh, you know make Kate sound like a terrible dinosaur.
1: <laughs> well, I can tell you, you definitely hit the nail right on the head. <laughs>
2: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> uh,
1: so this is your second novel you mentioned. Um, how is the experience writing this one different from writing the first?
2: In every way. <laughs> it's been... Oh, it's, it's been intense. Um, the second one, uh, because the first one, you know, you're, nobody knows your writing, which is a wonderful position to be in. Um, but it, it means that there are no expectations, there are no deadlines, it's down to you. Uh, and the second one uh, is the absolute opposite. Um, and it's a standing start as well. The first one, you think, oh, yes, I wrote it in, you know, a year and a half or whatever. But, of course, you don't because you've spent years thinking, um, mulling things over and uh, remembering bits and thinking things through. So with the second one, suddenly it's, uh, it's a standing start and um, you've, got to, you've got to get on with it very quickly. Um, so, yeah, it was very different.
1: And how is it now uh, being on the opposite side of all the questions? You're usually used to being the ones asking them all. Now you have to answer them all.
2: I know. It's pretty strange. It is strange. I mean, I've had um, about 18 months to get used to it, but the first ones were very odd. You know, I could feel myself sort of wanting to interrupt and say, but don't you want to know about this? Why didn't you ask me this? (laughs) But I've stopped doing that.
1: Well, I'm going to give you the opportunity now. Is there anything else that uh, you think that we should cover?
2: Oh, gosh. Um, no, I don't think so. I think we've, um, we've, we've talked about the book. Um, we've talked about the journalism. Um, I am writing the third one at the moment. So I wasn't so damaged by writing the second one that I haven't uh, got on with the next one. Um, so, and I am keeping Kate again.
1: That's wonderful. I look forward to reading uh, where else she ends up in her life. And being a journalist myself, there's definitely that connection with that character.
2: Fantastic.
1: Fiona, thank you for taking the time today.
2: Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it.
1: In Touch, Courtney Mom explores why we should give up technology in favor of more in-person communications. She spoke with our Pat
3: Farnack about why doing that is just so hard. Your novel is about an international trend forecaster who has a major kind of epiphany. And you are in real life a kind of trend maven, or you have been. Yes, that's correct.
4: Yep. I graduated from college, I guess this was in 2001, and I moved to Paris, France, France. Um, and I had gone on very bad advice, which came from a very bad ex-boyfriend, which was that I didn't, I didn't need a work visa to go live in France. Um, this is not true. You do. So I showed up without any papers, and I was taking all kinds of odd jobs. And one of them was translating trend guides for a big trend forecasting agency called Nelly Rody. So I was working on these guides, they're, they're huge tomes with all sorts of material and fabric swatches hanging out of them and they cover um, trends across many different industries. And I started out off translating them, but because I was I could speak French and English, they brought me to the sales conferences and I started to sell the books and then you know, as time went on I realized that I I, I really understood the the material and the concepts, and um, yeah, I slowly got into trend forecasting that way. However, I was never a Sloane Jacobson. I was very small potatoes compared to uh, my protagonist.
3: But I guess it is a, a blessing and a curse to have that kind of uh, talent.
4: It is. It's. It's. Um, and yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. The, the book was actually incredibly hard to write because, you know, when you have. A protagonist who knows everything about everything—what is there left uh, left to discover? You know, so I had to create a person who is actually a little slower on the page to come to her realizations than than such a professional would be in real life. Um, mm. But to me, that was the interesting challenge of this this book. You know, how do you write about it? trend forecasters? They have to be optimistic. They have to be. Yeah. They're they're I mean, even if they're thinking and, and talking about, you know, negative trends, they still have to believe in a world where there are people out there to buy things, and the world is functioning, and there's a functioning government, and so on and so forth. And, you know, over the last three years that I was writing this book, things are, things are really not great in America. Right. Um, and so it was both a personal challenge and a, a narrative one, but what do I do with a a really famous forecaster who's kind of depressed about the future. You know, how do you get out of that? You
3: know, maybe she doesn't know so much, though, after all, is, is no, what you're left I mean, with. Yeah. I I want
4: like, I don't want to give too much of away. Course but you not. are also dealing with a, a woman who's, you know, type A and a micromanager and um, thinks she has everything in control and she's about to turn 40 and the, the tables turn a little bit and she... She realizes that maybe, maybe she doesn't have it all figured out, and she starts to question some of her own preconceived uh, notions, including long-standing ideas she'd had about uh, reproduction. And you know, this is the this is the problem with is It's the first time she's starting to doubt her own instincts, so she doesn't know whether to trust these these intuitions she's having that, um, you know, the next big thing in technology might be actually touch and a return to face-to-face uh, contact.
3: <laughs> Although uh, you know that maybe she wasn't in touch all along. You know you're in crisis when your boyfriend is wearing those <laughs> Zente suits or whatever they are. And what are Zente suits? Explain them what for our listeners.
4: Of, I know. The minute I, I, I say it out loud, I just feel people Googling <laughs> it. And I want to say, I want to say, just read the book. There's a reason <laughs> that this man isn't. So zentai suits—they started off as a sort of Japanese fetish wear. Mm-hmm. They are um, basically uh, integral body stockings. So you you slip inside of them. They're sort of full length unitard, but they cover your face, your fingers. There's there's no part of your your skin that shows, and they're they're skin tight like a cat suit. So. The reason that a Roman, who is uh, Sloan's life partner, wears one is because he's a—he's dubbed himself a neo-sensualist. He, he lectures about touch and um, sensuality in the digital age. And so he sort of elected this suit as his avatar because he, he goes about in it and has become quite the internet celebrity because of his Instagram where he's, you know, sort of... Walking about Paris in in this gold zentai suit and sitting on a bench and going to farmers markets and and, and so on and so forth and um, he his idea about the suit is that it you know it represents your humanity and the avatar of yourself because you can see the outline of a person's body but your your skin can never be accessed and that goes along with his ideas about sort of new sensuality in the digital age where. Um, cyber sensuality and virtual sexuality is much more interesting and all encompassing and boundless than um, physical, you know, on the ground in real life sensuality, which is just not cool anymore. So, you know, she's saddled up with this guy who's really brilliant and they've had a lot of good laughs and intellectual successes over the years. But exactly at the moment when, when she's feeling that she does need a bit more affection in her life, this is when Roman starts to wear the zentai suit everywhere and Ed refuses to be touched. So,
3: Well, and also he's, he's, he's writing and speaking out against penetrative sex, as he yeah. puts it. And, and he doesn't, does he not think that this might have some effect on his significant other? Duh.
4: No, no, I mean, he's completely, um, you know, he's a very egocentric person. And, and, you know, it must be said that their their relationship has always sort of been professional successes first mm-hmm. and second, and then, you know, their own relationship comes comes after. They have almost, a, you know, more of a business partnership. So he actually thinks that she will be thrilled with this op-ed that he's working on and the, the very high places in America, you know, the New York Times and New York Magazine that are picking up his, his stance against um, penetrative sex and the idea that, sex is dead, it's just not cool, it's not necessary, plus the world is overpopulated, so, you know, why reproduce? Um, he thinks she'll, she'll be thrilled. He thinks that they're on the same bandwagon. Um, you know, it just goes to show how disconnected Sloan has become from the people in her her life that her own, you know, romantic partner <laughs> thought that she would be just fine with
3: it. Yeah. I really love the old old-school suggestion box that Sloan sets up at work and it's a hit but people are doing it uh, uh, anonymously they're putting suggestions pieces of paper with their innermost thoughts in the suggestion box
4: right so he you know Sloan is, is, is in the novel she's working at the biggest most important company in the world a company so big it's called mammoth which is a satire of um, Amazon, Google, and Apple. It's sort of a corporate turducken. And um, (laughs) she's, she's working with the most creative people there, but she quite quickly finds that the creativity is incredibly stifled because these young creative people are just, they're not really allowed to, to brainstorm. They need to come up with saleable products really, really quickly. And they're not not really allowed to fail. You know, the company's become too big to allow creative failure. So her, these creative brainstorms that the, the reader is exposed to in the book have become these very stilted things. And, and Sloan has, and, and then, the, you know, the CEO of the company keeps swooping in to visit and see how things are going and everyone gets really nervous. So she comes up with exactly, like you said, an old school idea for people to just leave notes in an actual, you know, cardboard box. Um, and there's supposed to be notes about ideas for the future that Mammoth can create, um, you know, for this conference that Sloan is helping them work on. But very quickly, the box fills up with these confessions of, of um, you know, people who are saying things like, I, I only go to the hairdresser to get my head touched. You know, I make these appointments just to have someone touch my head, and 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 there are a lot of confessions about how, you the the sort of tactile breathness that um, a lot of people are experiencing. So it becomes very moving. Except then all of a sudden she has all these confessions, and what is she going to do with them? She works at a technology company. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I like the one that uh, I take a hot water bottle to bed. I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't want to give away the, the uh ending of course, but are you on to something here? Um there certainly is a longing, don't you think, for more yeah for more contact and for more attention, I think. Not as not only contact and touch, but more attention from Oh I mean certainly
4: people.
3: I I mean I think um I think the book
4: is onto something. I mean, whether I'm onto something, I don't know. But <laughs> I, 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 I think, you know, I just got back from book tour. And when I was in Portland, I w- Portland Oregon, I was in conversation with a professional cuddler named Samantha yeah. Hess, who yeah. is the founder of sort of the professional cuddling movement in the country, um, in America. And this was an idea I had put forth, you know, three years ago when I started the book about the outsourcing of affection and how we would soon be paying people to be nice to us and to hold our hand, you know, to touch us in a way that friends or lovers might, because people just don't know how to do it anymore. And, um, there was an article that came out in the New York times last winter. I think about this professional cuddling movement. Yes. And I had two reactions. At first I was irate, you know, and I, Oh, my ideas are coming true. (laughs) And we got to get the book out. But then, then, you know, I was intrigued and I got in touch with Samantha and it's, The tendency is to laugh a little bit, like, oh, my God, professional cuddlers, that's so creepy and weird. But when you start talking to these professionals who do it, the real question is, why is there a need for this? It's not about the people who step up and decide, I have a really great hug, you know, and I'm going to bring it to other people. It's about the people who are actually, um, you know, letting go of the taboo and the shame and saying, I need more affection. I need more touch in my life. I've got skin hunger. And, and, and I had a really nice conversation with her because we were talking about the taboo. I mean, think about the things we pay professionals for. We, we see therapists. Um, we, we pay someone to just hear our deepest, darkest secrets. We pay someone, you know, a lot of people pay people to be groomed in really intimate places. So is it <laughs> really that outlandish to pay someone to just sort of hold you? I, I, don't, I don't think so. And, um, You know, on the the other end of the spectrum, I am starting to see and hear about young people, you know, millennials, um, giving up their cell phones for secondary dumb phones, going offline, Mm -hmm. um, you know, getting off of social media. And I think it'll be slow, but it's just, again, we're having worked in trend forecasting. It's impossible. We are at a total apex of availability. It seems impossible to me that we wouldn't. The pendulum wouldn't swing towards unavailability being an aspirational thing, and by that I mean, you know, renting an Airbnb that has no Wi-Fi. Yeah. You know, places with um, logos that have no Wi-Fi. Going to cafes that do confiscate your phones, and going to restaurants that you, to get a reservation you have to give them your phone. Um, going on a vacation and not letting anyone see any image, having people yeah. just not know where you are, and to not be able to be reached, I think, is going to be the new luxury. So, we'll see.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, last last uh, comment or question. Perfect title, I thought. It says it all. Oh. Was it, Was it difficult to come up with that? Did you try on other titles? You probably did, I, I would I think, does. but...
4: So many titles. So I actually work as a a namer now on the side. I I name products and brands for different uh, companies. So titles are hugely important to me. And, you know, my first book is I am having so much fun here without you You notice that there's a few more words in that title than this one. So um, I knew I wanted a shorter title, but um, originally it was called the end of touch. And my, my agent, you know, kept telling me, like, Courtney, that's a really depressing title. And it was my, it was actually my editor who said, let's just call it Touch. And I said, we can't just call it Touch. You know, you can't, only Jonathan Franzen can, can get away with <laughs> books that only have one, one word, you know. And so I said, the only way we can have that title is, you know, is if we have a really great cover. And I think that Putnam it, it just totally delivered. I, I love the cover. So, um, and, and yeah, it's funny. I fought against it a little bit because it, it made me nervous. But the, the sort of uh, largeness and vagueness of the title, but it actually it really—I think it's a perfect title because it's about touch. You know, touch-activated technology, yeah. um, and and then skin-to-skin contact and tactility. So,
3: yes. Touch. Oh, I, I think it's it's the perfect title. Well, thank you for uh, for for joining me and being so forthcoming about uh, your process and and, and the book. It, it was a wonderful read, and we've been talking with uh, we've been talking with Courtney Mom about her latest novel, Touch.
1: That's where we close the book on this week's podcast. If you haven't already, please check out some of our previous interviews on YouTube. You can find them at youtube.com slash WCBS 880. You can also email us at books at WCBS 880.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 books.